It's great to see you today. I'd like to ask you to open up your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And uh, that's page 257 uh, in your pew Bible. Yes, another long uh, section of Scripture. I'd like to introduce it with a few words and then uh, read through the chapter together with you. Maybe we could just open up with prayer now. Father, as we look at this portion of your word, I ask you to teach us from it. I ask you to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. We together are asking for your Holy Spirit not only to be on the preacher, but upon every one of us as hearers. Because every one of us here is a learner, a disciple of Christ. Everyone needs your word. So we pray through Christ our Lord, who loves us. Amen. Well, I learned again on Saturday at the men's breakfast that Second Samuel, and particularly David's life, is, uh, is the favorite section of Scripture for... Um, uh, for my brother uh, Bizad, and so uh, Bizad, you're, this is for you and for everyone else. We come to chapter 5, and really uh, what we're doing now is we're entering the high point of David's life. We're hiring, uh, we're entering the great years, when it's David's early reign. And so as I read the chapter, I want to note with you the progression and what's taking place, the, the greatness being assigned to David, how he's being lifted up, what, what wonderful uh, premium time of life this was for David. Uh, we're going to note five things before I read the passage. I just want to draw your attention to, to them as we, we come through them. The first thing you're going to notice is that David at last becomes the king over all Israel. He takes the stronghold of the Jebusites that had formerly been known as Jebus for his capital city, which is now called both, because it is both, Zion, the place from which God will reign on earth, and the city of David, the place from which David will reign over Israel. Finally, this nation of Israel is united as one kingdom with God at its center. And then thirdly, to the king and to his capital, a royal house is added for him, provided by Hiram, the king of Tyre. And then, next, the royal household is blessed with children, and the dynasty is being established. And then, fifthly, David at last lays rest, lays to rest the Philistines. He will repel two attempts to destroy him and Jerusalem, and in destroying them, lays them to rest forever. They never again are a problem in Israel like they had been for hundreds of years. And from there we'll move from chapter 5 into chapter 6 when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. 
And then into chapter 7, when God makes an everlasting covenant with David. These are the great years. These are the high years. So let me read 2 Samuel 5 to you with that in mind. Maybe I'll comment a little bit as we go. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. That was where he was reigning as the king over Judah. They said, behold, we are your bone and your flesh. And in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince or ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David king over Israel. He was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. And at Hebron, he'd reigned seven years and six months. At Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. That adds up to about 40. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Thinking David cannot come in here. In other words, (laughs) you're no match even for the blind and the lame among us. You are easily defeated. You are no threat to us. But nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, quote unquote, who are hated by David's soul. And therefore it is said, this is a proverb, the blind, excuse me, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. I'm not going to go into detail on the proverb or what it means. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward, which really means from the terrace. It was a terraced fortress. There were walls with rubble, with houses built on the, wall, on the rubble, with walls with rubble, so forth like this. That's the way the city looked. And he built it up from the terrace area inward, and he became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. And as for his comment, when he said uh, back in uh, about verse 8, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack. There was a spring of Gihon right outside that city. And there was a, basically a horizontal uh, tunnel from that spring to a shaft that raised about 37 feet high to another slanted but basically horizontal tunnel that ran another 90 feet right into the city. Supplied water to the city when it was under siege. But David's strategy was to have his troops go in through the water supply and through that tunnel system, which has been excavated, and then to attack that way in some fashion. Picking up at verse 11, Hiram, the king of Tyre, this is next, the palace, he sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. For their sake, he was exalted, not his own. 
And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. First time concubine is ever used of, of uh, certainly in relation to David, certainly in relation to the kings. It only been used as a term in relation to pagan rulers, I believe, I believe before that. He took more concubines and wives from, from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David, and these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. I should have rehearsed this. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Good. And now, the two defenses, the two attacks and defenses. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, which was quite close to Jerusalem. They were going to attack from there. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. And therefore, the place name is called Baal-perazim, which means basically the Lord of breaking through. And the Philistines left their idols there. And David and his men carried them away. They couldn't defend themselves, let alone the Philistines. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. They thought, this time we're really going to get them. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, the Lord said, now you shall not go up. Not like he did before. This is different. He said, go around to their rear and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. Must have been a grove of trees there. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. I don't know if any of you have ever been out west, if any of you have ever been among whispering pines before, raise your hand. In, in, uh, in Texas, my parents had whispering pines in their yard. And they were just they were like long needle pine trees. But you know, when the winds came through, in a certain way, they sounded like they were whispering. It was eerie. It was eerie. And I suspect perhaps something like that was going on here with the balsam trees. When the trees came through, it may have sounded like, you know, murmuring or, or shouting or marching. And David and the Lord said, when you hear that, you know it's me who's going out with the angels, the host of heaven. I'm going to defeat them for you. Then you attack them. And David did as he commanded, the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. By the time he destroyed them all, they were, sorry, old geezers. Okay, now, <laughs> the point was he chased them down and he completely and totally destroyed them. Now, this is an amazing account. 2 Samuel chapter 5. This five-fold or six-fold, if you want to take each battle separately, this projection we've read is really how God finally exalted David as king, established his kingdom, and secured its peace. So let's think about what we've read, what we've been introduced to. Let's go over it one more time. Let me fill in some information, and then we'll come to the application points 
of this sermon. First, God's hand was in it all. You see that. When the tribal leaders of Israel sought David to be their king, they explained those reasons, including in verse 2, the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And that might you know, provoke a question in your mind, which is, look, guys, if you had known that, why did you resist and attack David over all those years? Well, sometimes it's hard to learn, but they come to believe it, that in opposing David, they were opposing God. And they weren't going to do that anymore. And taking Jerusalem, David accomplished what had been impossible. Impossible for hundreds of years. Since the days of Joshua, there had been at one point, Jerusalem was overrun, but only for a very short period of time. It was never uh, under the rule of Israel. It was a Jebusite stronghold. But when David took it, hearkening all the way back to the days of Melchizedek in Genesis 15, I believe, when the city was called Salem, and Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, was the king of Salem. It was renamed Jerusalem, the foundation of peace, or the city of peace, because God was present and had a righteous king. And God's presence meant blessing. And it must, that name, Jerusalem city, must have spoken volumes to the tribes of Israel that had warred so long together. Now they had a capital. It was a city of peace. It was located in a city that, yes, was in the territory of Benjamin, but not David's territory of Judah. That was a good move politically. And that had never, that was neutral in the sense that it didn't have any history. It didn't have any history. And uh, it, was, it was fresh for Israel as its capital. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, the Lord had said to, to Israel, He said, But you shall seek the place that your Lord, I'm sorry, that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. You will seek this place. There will be a place. Where my name will dwell. I won't be like the nations. You know, idols, you'll seek a place, I will dwell there. And now, with the arrival of David and the Ark of the Covenant in the next chapter, this is coming to pass. And, and verse 10 sums up the significance of this. David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, of the armies of heaven, was with him. And then, King Hiram pagan from Tyre sends timbers from the mighty cedars of Lebanon and skilled craftsmen to build David a house. The text tells us of that in verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted, he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Now that language, exalting the kingdom, very significant language. The word exalt had hardly ever been used in the Old Testament up to this point. 
And this language immediately recalls a prophecy. In Numbers 24, verse 7, when Balaam in his third oracle was prophesying, prophesying about Israel and its future, that it had a future, that it would be a great future. His prophecy included about Israel, his king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. And that is exactly what was now happening. And when we come to the expansion of David's family, you see, I hope you notice this, you see no reference to the Lord. In all those other four areas, God is named in one way or the other, but here you see absolutely, you actually see no reference to the Lord. Now the reference is made that he had many children. Why? Because children are a blessing. But what of the women? They are unnamed. They're unnamed. And David's taking more wives and then establishing a harem of concubines from the Jebusite women in Jerusalem. That was not God's blessing at all. That's what he did. If you read the text carefully, he got concubines and wives from Jerusalem. In other words, from the captive people. He took him pagan people. He took wives, and now he created a harem for himself. Their names are not mentioned, and they're not dwelled on. They were not a blessing. Deuteronomy 17, 17, and the law of kings there in Deuteronomy 17 the law of kings declared of the coming king or kings of each king, he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away. So there'll be a lot more on that in Second Samuel, won't there? But then in number five, the fifth point in the progression, and David's repeated defeats of the Philistines as they amassed for an attack on Jerusalem, we read, we read David's response. His response to the first victory was, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. And then before the second battle, the Lord had said to David, and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So clearly, God is, the Lord of hosts is fighting these battles. It's an amazing story. Remarkable, remarkable. And it's impossible to overestimate the significance of David in the Old Testament. It really is. His name appears more times than any other person. The account of David's life, his experiences, his own experiences, is by far more extensive than of any other figure in the Old Testament. His life lessons, the things that he learned in his life are represented throughout the Psalms as lessons for every person to take to heart. It is, the, it is through David in the Old Testament that we see how the covenant faith of Israel, the nation, was personalized and individualized in the godly believer. And so when you read, this is significant, it, it, when you read the book of Psalms, it's teaching you again and again to say, not to recall David, but to say with David. To take what David said about his faith 
and say it yourself, that it would be of your faith. Isn't that amazing? David is such a significant figure. You think about some of these quotes from the Psalms, I'll just give you a couple of them. And I think many of you will immediately call to mind, like, sure, that was true of David. They're true of you. Because God is a covenant-making God, and his covenant of grace and promise of blessing and favor and help is for everyone who believes in him. Everyone who turns from their sin to him. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Psalm 69.1, that had just been illustrated or seen here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's David. That's you. I hope that's you. He will lift me high upon a rock. That's David lifted up. That's you. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the nation, the land. That was David, but it's you. So how is it David was so blessed of God? And I want to say that as I read uh, the passage, one of the ways, I guess I would say, in which David was positioned to receive blessing is certainly called of God. He was chosen by God. He was, yes, predestined by God. But one of these ways, then, as a result of all God's providences and goodness, he was positioned to receive God's Blessing was, of course, one. He certainly waited for the Lord to act, didn't he? It's just another way of saying that we see throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that he, he really trusted the Lord to keep his promise when it wasn't yet fulfilled, when it wasn't yet seen. I mean, during those dark years of intense trial, he was sustained by intense hope, and that was the hope that arose out of his faith. He was, and he was never disappointed. But what I want to draw your attention to especially are the expressions of David's faith in our passage. And I want you to think about these things for your own life. David inquired of God. David inquired of God. When he was up, whatever he was really up against, whatever he faced, he went to the Lord and he asked God about it. He was an inquirer. We're told this explicitly before his two battles. But surely it must have been the case, for example, in his going in to take Jerusalem. The Lord had said in Deuteronomy, I, it's a place I will choose. Surely David had sought God's wisdom on that as he had in chapter 2 of Second Samuel, sought God's wisdom into where to take up residence when he was the king of Judah. God said Hebron. Now he's king of Israel. And undoubtedly he sought the Lord. Whether this text says it or not, I think it's pretty obvious that he was to go into Jebus and to take Jebus. He was a man who inquired of God. And as long as he was a man who was inquiring of God, for the purpose of obeying God, he was really blessed by God. When he thought he no longer needed to do that, 
Because he's achieved so much. Because you hear that? Because he had achieved so much. He forgot God. He really did. And he lost badly. He suffered greatly for that. You know, we talk a lot about seeking the Lord. The Bible does. But I, I like this phrase in our chapter here about inquiring of the Lord because that word makes it clear what he was seeking from God. <laughs> he wasn't saying to God, God, bless me. He wasn't even saying to God, God, solve my problems. He was saying to God, God, what would you have me do? What direction do you have for me? Because I'm committed to obeying you. And the man, the woman, the boy or girl who inquires of God, seeks God in this way, will be blessed of God. God will not close the door. And after David inquired about engaging the Philistines in that second battle, and the Lord gave him such very different directions from what he'd given to David in the first battle, Text says in verse 25, and David did as the Lord commanded him. Yes. He inquired of God in order to obey God because he wanted to obey God because this was his commitment. He was asking him to show him. He's asking him to teach him. And this doesn't just apply to special revelations. This applies to to, to, or new revelations. I mean, this applies to what God has already revealed. We sang, didn't we, in this service, Psalm 119. Who wrote Psalm 119? Yes. And what's he say? What did we just sing again and again? He says, I'm seeking you. Tell me what your truth is. Tell me what it is. Help me understand it so I can keep your commandments. Because he knew that honor God and he knew he would be blessed of God as he kept his commandments. Indeed. Indeed. In the Bible, seeking the Lord is inquiring of him. Guide me. Give me Lord, I ask you, when we ask God to inquire of him, we ask him to show us his will, we do that with determination and with confidence. The determination is to obey what he shows us. And the confidence is then that our obedience will come with his blessing. We don't want to put the cart before the horse. In every stage of life, no matter what you're faced within your life, the first order of business is to inquire of the Lord. What would you have me do? Commit yourself to obey the Lord and then leave the blessing up to him. It's not bless me, Lord. I'll do my best to obey. No, no, no. Uh-uh. It's not that way. Not in our heart. Our heart is, Lord, I am here to obey you. Teach me. And you can be assured that as you walk in that kind of heart and spirit before the Lord, he will bless you. And then along with inquiring of the Lord, you see in this passage, because we're asking the question, how 
how was it that David was so blessed of God, along with inquiring of the Lord, we see that David constantly acknowledged the Lord as the giver of every good gift. He never lost sight of the connection between his inquiring of God and God's faithfulness to him to bless him. Of him walking after God and seeing that every good thing that came then to him as he walked and pursued God really was from God. Every good gift. After Hiram sent those workers and all that timber to Jerusalem to build that royal residence, again verse 12 says, and David knew, he knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David understood, he acknowledged, he knew it. And that every good gift that comes from God in response to or in line with our obedience, our commitment to him, every good gift that comes from him to us is given to increase then the good we can do to others in his name, in God's name. And that's absolutely the truth. Just like David was exalted for the sake of his people, when you see yourself blessed in your life, it is, it, you know, I, I don't know how to put it. It's not for us to sit on, you know. It's, it's for us to share. When David defeated the Philistines the first time, he acknowledged, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. And then the second time, he knew, and he was acknowledged that the Lord was going before him to strike down the Philistines. So David's inquiring of God, is seeking God, but understand, to inquire of him in order to obey. And then he's acknowledging the Lord, thanking him, praising him, giving him glory, because he is the giver of all good gifts, and he blesses those who obey him. That process of inquiring and acknowledging and inquiring and acknowledging. That is the spiritual pulse of a blessed man or woman. David knew it and he taught taught others. Again in the Psalms, Psalm 27, 8, you have said to God, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Psalm 9, the Lord does not forsake those who seek him. Psalm 34, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 22, those who seek the Lord shall praise him. There is wisdom in this. In everything, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. You won't be stumbling. You won't be lost. You won't be given more than you can handle. And a lot of life that is unnecessarily hard for those who do not walk with the Lord, do not obey him, will not be unnecessarily hard for you. David's faith remains our chief example. But I also want to say, counterpart's also true. His failures remain, in the Bible, our most vivid warnings. 
We are to see ourselves in him. And as we will see, and you know this, like countless others, David found it easier to seek the Lord in order to, in order to obey him and then really to acknowledge him when he was under pressure than, he was, than when he was in times of plenty. When he was suffering rather than in times of his success. Distress so often causes us to remember the Lord, to turn away from our confidence in ourselves. And security so often leads us to forget him rather than multiply our praise for him. Seriously. You know, Moses warned the fledgling Israel in Deuteronomy about the days where the nation would be a true kingdom, about days when the nation would be great. And he warned them to be careful to seek the Lord in order to obey him, to acknowledge every good thing came from him. Otherwise, God said, or Moses said, you will say in your heart, my power and my might have gotten me this wealth. You know what it is? You go to the mall. You're on a mission. I'm not sure women are always on a mission when they go to the mall as much as men. But I think a lot of us are are really on a mission. We can relate to this. But then what happens? Well, the way everything is laid out for us in the, the mall, the world, Actually, it's so to distract us, to get us to go, you know, window shopping. To forget, really, why we went there. Or what we're about. And begin to latch on to other things. Maybe you come out with something we never intended to buy, that we never really needed in the first place. And that is a spiritual parable of life in the world. You know... The carrot on the end of the stick of faith when we're in distress and suffering, it is hope. But what happens when you're satisfied and you have almost everything you need? So that, you know, that immediate hope, you know, that immediate, you know, this is right ahead of me. The carrot, it's not there anymore. What do you do? Well, you know, that carrot, you start finding little carrots, little weeds to trail tie on the end of that stick unless you know what you're about and you know who's blessed you as he's blessed you it's come from God and unless you know he's training us and teaching us to inquire of him always and it's not about our pleasure it's about his glory and he blesses those who are committed to his glory you seek first the kingdom of God and all those things the world runs after all the things they window shop after, not all things, but anything that's good of the creation, it'll be added to. My question is, what can hold us back from regressing into all of the idolatries of unbelief? Especially when you and I live in a world that runs rich and wild in its unbelief whose leaders boast that our world order is bulletproof, that it is really too big to fail, no matter matter how outrageously immoral and irresponsible we are, 
in the conduct of our lives, in the laws that we pass, or in the way we conduct our finances and economy. Too big to fail. What can hold us back from regressing into all the idolatries that are around us? And the answer is, having a king who is himself righteous, having a king who is holy and unyielding, who is as determined to discipline his people even as he is determined to forgive them because he refuses to turn them over to the powers of darkness and to the coming wrath. That's the answer. Having that king. A great king. Everything else, anyone else, pales in comparison to that king. And we're loyal to that king. That's who, that's what we need. We need a king. People need a king. Christ is our king. So brothers and sisters in Christ, do not fall from grace. He atoned for sin in your name in order that you might acquire of God in his name, in Christ's name, in order to obey him as Christ obeyed him. in order to give you the joy of seeing him work in your life. And the joy of using your gifts and your energy and all your physical and emotional and spiritual strength to acknowledge him and worship him. Because in worshiping him, your joy as the creature he made in his image is complete. We need a king. And we have a great king. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you to be with us as we contemplate this passage. And not just 2 Samuel 5, it's the whole book. It's the story of 1 and 2 Samuel. It's the account of David's life. We we drop into these uh, chapters, these sort of episodes, but they're part of a whole They're teaching us something. They're drawing our attention to something. And it really does bring us to Christ. I thank you that David is not our king. When David flubbed up pretty badly and was chastised, the implications for Israel were terrible. But the church of Jesus Christ, the nation of God and the earth, has a great king. And he does not compromise. He has no concubines. And I pray, dear Father, as we move forward, you just <laughs> impress upon us the honor and the privilege of your mercy. Amen.